Just before we start, don't forget, John and I are live on stage. The red velvet seats, I can see them now, John, Ooh. of the Olympia, <laughs> the 5th of March. David McQuinion's podcast, live. Get your tickets at ticketmaster.ie. See you there. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It's podcast time. You know that drill. John looks quizzically at me. (laughs) I look quizzically back at John. We try to answer some questions about the world. We're going to talk about the chances of a global recession. Cheery stuff, yeah. That cheery stuff. That'll put the skids on you. How are you, Ed? I'm very good. Yeah, yeah. I'm a bit sore all over from you hitting, s- You're hitting the gym. Oh, hitting the gym. You should see him ripped. Ripped. He is a specimen. Yeah. Now, speaking yeah. of subtlety and subtlety of movements and muscular movements. Yes. I want to talk about arthritic injections for old dogs. Oh, right? poor Sasha. Now, you and I are very close to taking the same drugs. Yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> we may have slipped a couple. <laughs> exactly. Bought them yeah. on that funny... It's getting what kind of buzz you're going to get, you know? I know. And the buzz, I was I was in the, the vet yesterday, right? So Sasha is now 14, which is 98 in a dog's yeah. year, right? And because she's a Labrador, she gets arthritis and rheumatism. That's what happens to the labs. And their joints all seize up. Not the joints you're thinking about. They're actual knee <laughs> joints and whatever, right? And there's a, there's a wonder drug, an amazing drug called Librella. Right. And it's an arthritic drug that was given to humans. And then somebody said, well, why don't we give it to dogs? Right? Because they, they say, so it's a tiny dose of what the humans get. Yeah. And Sasha's been having it for the last about year. And it's made a massive difference yeah. to her life. Like she's running around, maybe not like a puppy, but she's up and about. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was up in the vet yesterday. And of course, they've run out of it. This is the supply chain. This is where I come back to inflation. Oh, right. right. So all over Ireland, vets are trying to get this Librella drug and they can't get their hands on it because it's imported, right? And what is happening is the global supply chain. So you imagine how complex it is 
to make just one drug. You know, yeah. you're getting all sorts of things from everywhere. Bits are being made all around the world. And because supply chains are tightening up and because there's such this idea that the demand for this was subdued and now it's gone through the roof. And of course, supply chains can't react very quickly. So the price is going up. And I was thinking to myself, you know, as I was talking to the vet, he was probably looking at me as I was glazing over, <laughs> thinking, hmm, is this a supply chain issue? Is this an inflation issue? But this is how economics impacts on your life. Yeah. You know, that the and actual life. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so it's 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 an alleviate arthritic pain for a full month. It's an amazing, amazing drug. I have even the leaflet here. How does it work? It's an innovative new therapy called <laughs> monoclonal antibodies. It is a biological therapy that works like your dog's own immune system. It targets and neutralizes a protein that stimulates pain in patients with arthritis. This is a sponsorship read, right? No, 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 this is not a sponsor. I'd love if we got sponsored by a dog rheumatic pharmaceutical product. Except they won't be able to supply the gear. Well, could you imagine actually if this podcast ended up with a lead sponsor that was rheumatism for old dogs? That would be kind of perfect for us. Go no, on, so, what's, what's so your John, amazing segue? My amazing segue is the link between rheumatism in dogs, the rate of inflation, the supply chain, whether or not inflation is transitory or not, and the threat of a global recession. So when you're sitting in the vet discussing whether the back leg of the old Labrador works, very few people's mind would jump to global recessions, but that is what we do here. And let's go and talk to Dario Perkins, a fantastic economist over in the UK, got his finger on the pulse of inflation, monetary policy, central banks, to see what the hell is going on, particularly with central banks. It's always very worrying in economics when central bankers become the story and what they do in the vaults of central banks becomes the issue. When, of course, the issue is inflation, lowflation, what are central bankers going to do? Are they really as important as they think they are? You know, they go to a thing called Jackson's Hole every year, which is in Wyoming, and they have this shindig. I think it's in the middle of summer. I think it's in August, right? And they have these Delphic quotes about their perception of the world and et cetera. Now, I speak as a former central banker, so I'm kind of speaking about my own tribe in one way. But ultimately, the question is, do they have as much power or are they beholden to the markets more than the society? Or what are the central tenets of central banking and why are they important now? And luckily, I have a man on the line who knows all this stuff, Dario Perkins, is over in, outside of London. Where, whereabouts are you, Dario? I live in Tunbridge Wells. Tunbridge Wells, a place yeah. which the commuter loves. Him, <laughs> his agitated Tunbridge Wells. What was the letter into the, the Times, was it? Yours annoyed Tunbridge Wells. Disgusted. Tumbridge. Yours disgusted. <laughs> what's your perception now about what's going on with central banking? <laughs> well, I'm totally disgusted about it. <laughs> 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 no, I think that, well, there's no doubt they, they believe their own hype. You know, they take a lot of credit amongst themselves for the fact that inflation has been low for the last 40 years. And they look back on the 1970s, you know, when we had those big wage price spirals and 15 years of very high inflation. And they think that was a big monetary policy error. And they think that it was Volcker, you know, Paul Volcker in the US who squashed inflation. And then ever since then, they've delivered what they call this nominal anchor, which is kind of anchored inflation down at low levels and kept it there because they're so powerful and so credible. And they believe that, you know, these, these tiny manipulations of interest rates can drive and fine tune this economy. And of course, it, you know, it's all kind of bizarre. <laughs> you know, there's 
big structural forces that have kept inflation down over the last 30, 40 years, you know, uh, globalization, technology, demographics. And I think, you know, the central bank role has been relatively minor. I mean, it has been there, um, but it's been relatively minor. Can, can I stop you and come back to it? So tell me, how does globalization bear down on inflation? How does demographics and how does technology explain those three big, big, big sort of what economists called deflationary impulses? Explain them to me. Well, if you think about the 1970s, we had uh, closed economies, so there was not much competition across countries. We had powerful trade unions. We had a young militant workforce. And we basically had um, a decade of conflict. You know, we, we've talked about this before. Inflation comes from power. And we had this power struggle between capital and labor. And that, you know, lasted the best part of 15 years. And that gave us those very powerful wage price spirals. And then, you know, we effectively squashed that. You know, we, we globalized our economies. We destroyed trade unions. We destroyed worker power. We opened up the world to these, you know, workers from overseas in terms of immigration and, uh, you know, global markets. And it totally cha changed those power dynamics in the economy. So we've had this period now where inflation has been very, very low. And the wage share uh, of the economy has been going down and down and down. So corporate power has kind of been dominant during that period. And I think, you know, central banks have played a role in, in you know, suppressing inflation. But I think that they wildly overstate the role that they've played. And I think, you know, they kind of have to because, you know, they're, they're scared. Because that's their gig. <laughs> that's their gig. If, you're, if your one job is to control inflation, then you have to believe that you're able to control inflation. But now we're in this really perverse situation because, you know, the, the, the inflation that we have now has got nothing to do with monetary policy. You know, we've had these massive distortions in our economy over the past two years. We, you know, governments were very good at um, preventing a depression from, you know, preventing a serious recession. They basically topped up everybody's income, but we could only spend that income in a very small part of the economy. So we all sat at home buying things off the internet. And of course, you know, that, that, create, that created massive goods inflation. Now, you know, we're in this situation where inflation everywhere is really high because of these distortions have continued. And we've got central banks looking at this and thinking, oh, my God, it's seven, you know, inflation is at 7% in the US or 5% in Europe. What are we going to do? We're going to have to prove that we're, we're credible. And so now, you know, they're, they're, they're coming out very, very hawkish. We've had this massive hawkish pivot over the last few months um, as they've you know, tried to convince people that they're serious. And so, you know, this is taken to a bazaar when you've got, you know, Andrew Bailey, chief economist of the Bank of England, basically telling people amidst this massive squeeze in incomes, you know, everyone's being squeezed by this. Every day, the news is about, you know, the, the, the cost of living crisis and, you know, wages not rising and, and us getting squeezed by this. And he's out there saying, well, you're just going to have to accept this because if you don't, we're going to raise interest rates and some of you are going to be unemployed. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. But when you... <laughs> When you take that kind of mainstream economics idea and you and you turn it into simple English, you know you can come across quite badly, and that's the problem these central bankers have. Well, well, let's let, let's focus on that because you you said about a couple of minutes ago the share between labour and capital in the economy, and this idea that always and ever the worker should pay, as opposed to the owner of capital should pay. Let's get let's get all Marxist before we go on, right? So, so there's an inherent bias in what the chief economists of the Bank of England are saying, chief economists of most central banks are saying, which is basically that if we have a problem, the adjustment comes on the wage of the average person. 
as opposed to the profit margins of the average corporation. Because if we look at it, what we could do is we could reduce profits, keep wages the same, and bear down on inflation. Where do you think the bias comes from? I think the bias comes from this belief that unemployment is ultimately your tool for controlling inflation. So if you have an inflation problem, this is this is the Phillips curve that you know central bankers are obsessed with. This idea that if you have an inflation problem, the best way to get inflation down is to create a bit more unemployment because you suppress people's wage demands. If you make them fearful of losing their jobs, they're not going to demand big wages. So it's it's kind of inbuilt in the way you know mainstream economics thinks. It's, it's this basic relationship between unemployment and inflation which guides everything. Um, and it is you know it is a kind of intellectual bias you know it's, it's a, a kind of pro- it's, it's a very serious bias because what it's, yeah. what it's basically yeah. saying is that well this has been the argument hasn't it that the argument is that for over 30 years uh we've tolerated more unemployment than we needed to because of this belief that central bankers have had about how the economy works and actually if they'd allow the economy to run a bit hotter uh, we could have got unemployment to lower levels. And that might not have created these kind of wage price spirals that we had in the 70s. This obsession with the 1970s is really bizarre when you think that we've had nothing like the 1970s <laughs> since then. You know, and even if you look all across the kind of economic history, that that period of the 1970s is really odd. You know, there's no other period where you have those kinds of dynamics. I, you know, absolutely. But it's a collective memory. It's also an age thing that... The people who are largely in power, the very upper echelons of the finance game and the advisor game are probably in their 60s and 70s now, probably at the sort of the very end of their career. And they have a collective neurosis about the 1970s because they remember it. And they were also, if they don't remember it, they were educated by people who remember it. And so consequently, they come with a toolbox, which is entirely jaundiced for fixing a problem that may have been peculiar to a certain decade and is now no longer relevant. That's why we have them. That's why we have independent central banks because of the 1970s. You know, this was the lesson that economics took, that if we didn't have an independent central bank that was determined to create a bit of unemployment to make sure inflation stayed low, uh, then we would just keep repeating those mistakes over and over again. And so, you know, the, the one central bank, the Bundesbank, which came out of the 1970s with its credibility intact, has repeatedly made that mistake. You know, every time there's an oil price shock, they've been going, oh my God, it's 1970s again. Oh my God, it's 1970 again. We need to tighten policy. And of course, you know, those those oil price shocks that we've had, and there's been lots of them over the last, you know, 20 years, they've never generated those kinds of dynamics again. So that basic view has just been consistently wrong. So let's look at right now. Okay, so if you're listening to the show and you're thinking, okay, Maybe you're over in the UK, you're listening to the Bank of England raising rates, you're listening to the Fed raising rates. ECB are probably going to join that chorus quite soon, maybe in a slightly less effusive, less operatic way, but they will join it, right? And you're thinking, okay, so I've just been told my energy bills are going up, I've just been told my wages have to go down, and I've just been told for good measure, my mortgage rate's going to go up. How does the average person make sense of this? Well, exactly. I mean, it's it's bizarre. And I think that message, um, you know, that, that the Bank of England in particular has been giving over the last few weeks, you know, basically threatening people not to try to get wage increases to offset the fact that they're being squeezed, has been, you know, completely toned up. And I think it's it's looked really bad for them. I, I think this has been a real, 
real problem. Um, it's very hard, but I, I think you know basically. I mean, if you if you if you wanted to be kind to the Bank of England, you would say that you know the UK in particular has suffered this shock from Brexit. You know, because immigration is no, no, no. You've you've suffered a shock from the nine o'clock, ten o'clock news and news night looking at the bonkers creatures inside your parliament houses. That's the shock you've suffered. I want to talk to you about that in a second. Well, that's well, bad. That's, 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 that's totally right. But I think that, the, you know, that you could say that because of Brexit, you know, there is going to be this squeeze on the economy. You know, we're going to get more inflation than we have before because we've got less immigration, because, you know, we've, we've cut off some of our trading partners. And so there has to be, this is the way the, the central banks think, there has to be a squeeze on the real economy. And so that squeeze either has to happen by itself, you know, because wages don't keep up with prices, which is what's happening right now. If workers can resist that and you get these kind of wage price spirals, then the central bank has to come in and cause the squeeze itself. So it's a, there's a lot of pessimism, I think, about you know, what the supply side of the economy can achieve that is, is kind of embedded in this. And maybe the UK is a special case, but I think you're getting examples of this in the US as well. I mean, you know, the, the Fed has given up on labour force participation coming back. So all these workers that dropped out of the labour force during the pandemic, it's now decided that those workers aren't coming back. And that's also making them more hawkish. OK, now let's let's look, because I've always thought the UK is a special case because it's it has been a more inflationary economy than almost any other developed economy in the last 30 years. It's got this fear of it. There's also a sort of a, a constant hoping that sterling will devalue in order to accommodate all that sort of stuff. I think the UK is slightly more inflationary, more prone to inflation than other economies. But let's let's come to the idea of financial markets. So if the central bankers, as we just said, are not talking to the average dude on the street, okay, and explaining to them the inexplicable. Is it? Is their primary audience just financial markets and the fear that what they will do is they will frighten the horses, as they used to say to me in the Irish Central Bank years ago? I, I think there's, there's definitely an element of that. I mean, clearly, you know, people in financial markets look much more closely at what these, these central bankers are saying. And it is their natural audience. So I think that's part of it. I think that you know, part of the mechanism through which this is supposed to work, this tightening, is it's supposed to tighten financial conditions. Uh, and so the squeeze is supposed to start in financial markets. And I think you've seen that over the past few months. You know, There's been a lot more volatility in markets. Investors are much more concerned about what's happening. And you know, in part, it's it's the nature of this kind of weird cycle that we're in, because, you know, this hasn't been a normal business cycle. We basically shut down our economy and we reopened it again. And quite quickly, the economy has gone back to where it was before. But all of that good news on the economy was already priced into financial markets. So, you know, you think about the start of a recovery, there's always lots of uncertainty about how strong the recovery is going to be. You know, there's green shoots and then there's risks of double dip. So markets are a bit nervous about whether the recovery is going to last. Um, this time we've had none of that. You know, there's just a presumption that the recovery is here and the economy is back to where it was. But interest rates are still much lower than they were before. And so, you know, from central banks, there's this desire to quickly move interest rates up much faster than in the past, just to get back to where they were before the crisis. But for financial markets, this is unambiguously bad news because the recovery is priced in, but the policy tightening isn't priced in. And that's just assuming 
that you know inflation comes down by itself. If it doesn't, and central banks actually have to tighten more forcefully to try and force inflation down, then that you know that's compounding the bad news because then you're talking about it hitting you know future earnings and future growth as well. Yeah, because I mean we talked about Paul Vocker, just so everyone listening has a sense. Vocker was this, he actually only died about a year or two ago, a very old age. I think he got to about 97, 98. Unbelievably tall man. This is the first thing you have to, he was about six foot 10, huge guy. And he came into the Fed in the late 1970s when the American rate of inflation was in double digits. Jimmy Carter was in power. The Iranian hostages was blighting the Americans. There was a sense of America losing its way. Japanese companies were taking over in manufacturing. There was a real malaise in the States. And of course, added to that, there were very, very high levels of wage and price inflation. And Vocker came in, and it sounds mad for our generation, but raised American interest rates to 21%. Okay? Now, that's at a time of inflation, maybe at 4 14, 15% was a real rate of interest of 6, 7%. And if Jay Powell were to do anything like that now, your Fed funds rate would be 9, 10, 11. Mm. That won't happen, will it? No. Okay. But, but the, you, know, you know, that, I mean, that Volcker shock, as it's been called, I mean, you know, what was it essentially? It was Volcker causing a recession. A huge and, recession, yeah. And guess what? If you if you raise the interest rate to twenty percent and you cause a massive recession and put millions of people out of unemployment, that does you know, tend to bring inflation back down. It was just that the politics of doing that were, were just too difficult for the Fed until he came in and, and engineered that. I mean, it wouldn't take twenty percent interest rates to cause that kind of uh, destruction this time around, just because you know there's so much more debt in the system. That's where uh, I'm going with. That's where I'm going with this question. Yeah. So what, you what? need to raise interest rates to twenty percent. The, the question, I think, they can get interest rates back to where they were before the pandemic. So in the US, we have what two and a half percent interest rates. So that's two hundred and fifty basis points from where we are now. Uh, if they try to go, you know, really far beyond that, then you know that's when the squeeze is going to really be felt in the economy because. There's much more corporate debt than there was, you know, a decade ago or 20 years ago. And once you get interest rates back to where they were before, you're already looking at debt servicing costs for most companies in the US, which are at record highs. So then you start to push interest rates more and more above that, and you're just going to squeeze these companies. And a lot of these companies just aren't profitable at all. So let's so suddenly, you're, suddenly you're talking about bankruptcies and unemployment. This is this is where I'm going with this. So if central banks do what they want to do, which is to bring the rate of inflation down via using interest rates, pushing real interest rates into positive territory and and, and, and what I would say substantially positive, okay? Now, that doesn't have to be 10, it'd be 2%, but that's a lot when there's a lot of debt. The other two constituencies that central banks have to listen to, even though they suggest they don't, are the political class and generally the society, the people, Right. Do you think, we look at Joe Biden, we look at Boris Johnson, we look at the various different leaders in Europe, okay, who are under the umbrella of the ECB, it'd be very, very difficult for central bankers to ever do a VOCA or anything close to that, even if they want to, given the sort of constituencies they, they need. And that's before we talk about financial markets imploding. Yeah, I mean, they could do it by mistake. So, you know, the problem with raising interest rates is that you start to raise interest rates, nothing much happens. So you continue raising interest rates, nothing much happens. And then suddenly 
you get a recession and you're cutting interest rates very aggressively. And, you know, the, 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 it's all it's all going to come down to what happens to inflation over the next 18 months, two years. I mean, I'm still... Yeah, give me, a, give, me, give me the Dario Perkins you're not allowed to You're not allowed to use the transitory word anymore. Oh, you are. Uh, oh, you are. <laughs> but I, I think this is still transitory, you know. And when you look at periods in the past where we've had these transitory inflation periods, so periods where inflation comes back down by itself, Typically, they last about eighteen months, two years. There was there was always this weird perception that it would just happen in six months and inflation would immediately fall. That's not what happens. It, it never happens like that. It takes time. And my guess is that inflation will come down quite quickly. And probably in twelve months' time, we won't be thinking about a world that's overheating and having this kind of inflation problem that we have right now. But if I'm wrong on that, then central banks are really in trouble because. You know they're going to have to squeeze the economy to try and get inflation down, and um, you know the, the cost of doing that could be huge. Uh, and we haven't been in that kind of era for a very long time. You know, you think about previous tightening cycles. So um, that they usually started to raise interest rates quite early, and they tried to ensure this kind of smooth landing. So they tried to get interest rates back to neutral about the same time the economy was operating at full employment, their, their estimate of what full employment was. And you, and you tried to ensure this kind of smooth glide path for the economy. And every time they started to raise interest rates, inflation was always around 2%. And then it never went anywhere. So the last three tightening cycles, inflation has gone nowhere. It's just been the sticky, you know, the sticky trend around 2%. This time, we're starting off, you know, where they're much later because they've waited much longer. They think their economy is already back to full employment before they even start to tighten policy. They've got inflation at 7%. They think inflation is going to come down, but they really have no idea, you know, where it's going to settle. And if it settles at a rate that is too high, they're going to have to do something that they haven't done since the Volcker era, which is try to force inflation down by raising interest rates. And I think, you know, once you're in that world, they've already made serious errors. And, you know, I put on Twitter about this, this Paolo Maldini quote, where he said... Oh, uh, by the know, way, it's the, the AC Milan. Oh, the, yeah, I'm an AC those, Milan Those fan. football, those men who don't know as Dario's an AC Milan fan and uh, are clearly, by default, a, fila- a fan of the Italian football team. Did I tell you yeah. I saw Paolo Maldini? In a cafe, I sort of got. I remember he made quite an impression on you. And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just amazed by him. I just thought it was, it was like for, for me, it was like, I don't know, a pop idol or something. He was brilliant. <laughs> so go on. What's the Paolo, Paolo Maldini quote? The, the Maldini quote is that if I have to make a tackle, I've already made a mistake. And so what he was saying is, you know, defending is all about positioning and timing. And if you get to the point where you're going to have to make that physical challenge, you've already you've already made a mistake, you've already messed up your timing or you've messed up your positioning. And I think something similar applies to central banking. You know, if we're at the point where central banks are going to have to try to force inflation lower, then they've already screwed up. And, you know, the end game there is probably going to be a recession because in the end, that's the only real tool they've got, create a recession to to try and force inflation down. Well, as you know, concluding an economics discussion with the wisdom of Paolo Maldini is always a must on the Dave McWilliams podcast. Daniel, thank you so much. Great stuff. No worries. Good to talk to you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Paolo Maldini. Paolo Mandini, listen, you two guys were nerding out like two nerdy That was the essential macroeconomics, you know, <laughs> yeah. where's the world going? Where's the economy going? Yeah. But, but okay, okay, okay. So let's get into this and, and explain it to me as, as the resident gobshite. You are not the resident <laughs> gobshite. You are the savant of the basement. The savant <laughs> of much. the basement. <laughs> bringing a little bit of reality to the Nerdistan that is in my head. But come here, my understanding of, like, is this a classic boom-bust cycle? Like, with low interest rates, which we've had for, like, forever? For a uh, long, long time. Equals low unemployment, which then equals... Uh, Dynamism, which yeah, then equals inflation, inflation, which then equals... And then yeah. you're into this big cycle. Right. Is this a classic, or is there something different about okay. this? At the core, that was a discussion about whether there's going to be a recession next year or in three years' time. Yeah. That's the first thing. Got to, when economists go off like that and we're talking like this, we have to cut to the chase. What Dario was saying there is if the rate of inflation proves to be much, much more vibrant and dynamic and higher than it is now, central banks will have to use this incredibly blunt, blunt force, which is the rate of interest, Mm. to bring down the demand in the economy. But when so many companies are leveraged and indebted, right, if you do two things at once, you put up the price of capital, yeah. okay, the cost of, re of servicing your loans, number one, and you reduce the demand for goods, what you'll actually do to companies is, one, you'll reduce their revenue, out of which they pay their debt, but you'll also increase the amount of debt they have to pay. Right. So you'll squeeze the balance sheet on both sides. Yeah. This will precipitate a global recession. So what he's saying is, if he is wrong about transitory, if he is wrong about the fact that inflation is just a transitory phenomenon, and if the world and the supply chains start going back, etc., we are looking at a pretty serious global recession but the in the next 24 months. But but the problem there is that, as, as Dario just said, like... We won't know, like your your usual transitory inflation rates. Yeah. You know, may last, I don't know, 12, 18, 24 months. Yeah. But if we wait for those 18 to 24 months, we're too late. Well, this is the Paolo Maldini idea. So yeah. the central banks have to move now, right? 
But it's a and shot in the dark. It's a shot in the dark because we've had energy price spikes before, right? So yeah. basically what's, which is what's, what's causing all this is a spike in energy costs, right? And we've had that before. Like energy is the foundational price of all economics, right? But this even goes back, this is not about oil, this goes back to when we were actually trading slaves. Slaves were energy. If you think about right. it, right? Okay, yeah, because yeah. the physical energy it yeah. cost to build a pyramid was yeah. human it was muscle, power. right? Yeah. So, I mean, going right back to the Egyptians, energy has always been the foundational price in the economy. And the second foundational price has been food. But food is a function of energy because the amount of energy you put in yeah. is the amount of energy you get out. So it's a really, that's what I've always thought, energy, economics is all about biology. Because biology is all yes. about energy. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, this is this evolutionary uh, yeah. economics. Yeah. So if you look at the way we've evolved now, the energy prices are what we think about gas prices and oil prices, whatever. Now, they tend to fluctuate very, very aggressively every three, four, or five years, right? Yeah. And what he's saying is that we have seen these spikes in energy prices before. And if we only just wait and chill out, what we see is they actually tend to percolate out of the economy. And the reason is the following, right? When oil prices rise, two things happen very quickly. The first is that we tend to consume less, right? Mm -hmm. Because prices go up. But probably more importantly, various different oil and gas fields are only profitable at certain very high rates of oil prices. So for example, the cheapest place in the world to take oil out of the ground, okay, are the Saudi and UAE basins, yeah. where the oil is just under the sand. Yeah, it's very accessible. Right? Then you have North Sea oil. Then mm. you have shale oil, right? Yeah. Okay? And the same goes for all sorts of fossil fuels. The more difficult the fossil fuel is to get, the more expensive it is. But when prices go up to, let's say, $80 a barrel, suddenly all these things become profitable. Yeah. So you get a surge of financial capital and speculative capital goes into these little ones, right? They come on stream. So what you get is amazingly, right? When oil prices go up, okay, you get a, a very quick impact on the economy. But what actually happens then on the demand side, what actually on the supply side is a huge amount of new oil comes on stream. Now, by the time the new oil has actually been pumped out of the ground or new energy of any sort, the demand has already fallen. So the huge supply of new energy hits an already weakened demand and energy prices fall right Drop. back. Yeah. Okay. So what he's saying that is makes sense. cool your jets, relax, and let this happen. But right? we also have so so just just so 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 we get that. So that's what his point is. But the central right. bankers are really worried that all this increase in energy prices increases in so for example, energy prices, you know, you're talking not just energy, fertilizer is all fossil fuel. It's chemicals, right? Yeah. So food prices go up, energy prices go up, heating prices go up. We're now in the winter, so that feels clearly like this. Yeah, yeah. It's much more. So the central bankers are kind of panicking, he's saying. But what you're saying is they don't panic. They won't know if they're panicking until it's too late. Yeah, yeah. And that's... that's and then it's hysteria. That is the wisdom of Solomon. That is the wisdom but, of Solomon. But what also, to do? There, there's also a couple of other key factors that are affecting this as well. Yeah. Uh, one, as, as as I understand it, one is Putin and his hand on the the gas tap. Yeah, 
reduce, but he can only do that so far because he also needs he, the income. He, yeah, he needs for, the income from that. Because just, just I mean, what what Putin has done, what 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 all Soviet leaders and Russian leaders have done since they fell upon these extraordinary energy deposits, mm. is they have been a default position of OPEC. So when OPEC pushes up oil prices, the Russians do very well. And what they do then is the Russians, through increased taxation, increased public resources, they then shower the Russian economy with goodies yeah. to keep everyone happy. Right. So they really need it. They, they can't afford to mess around. The interesting thing is suppliers of energy are much more sensitive to prices than consumers of energy. Now, that's a big shift since the 70s. In the 70s, consumers of energy were much more sensitive. And the reason is energy is now, although it's still elemental to us, there's a diverse source of energy that we can get, okay? Yeah. Whereas if you're actually a Putin or a Mohammed bin Salman, you really need to keep prices high and stable. Yeah. So you can't really... Stability being the key. Yeah, you can't really mess around with it. Yeah. And the other key factor then as well is, which is this new phenomenon of the great resignation. Yeah. So when you're talking about inflation of wages, etc., with the great resignation, basically is putting even more pressure. With the great resignation, yes. So the great resignation is basically a huge amount of millennials in the main and older boomers saying, I couldn't be bothered going back. I have enough yeah. money. And the millennials saying, I'm going to do something else. But what that does is that reduces the labor force. Now, the labor force isn't the amount of people in the country. This is the critical thing. The labor force is the amount of people in the country who make themselves available for work. Right, so the labor force right. is only about 65% of the total population in any country, right? right? And it's been falling for a long, long time, and now it's falling even more. So what the central bankers are worried about is if wage inflation is rising, the way in which you reduce that is more people come in to work, to take those jobs, okay? And therefore you get this moderation of wages, right? Mm. But if you're saying the great resignation is a problem it is because it means that the available pool of labor is smaller yes and therefore yeah, yeah. wage inflation is higher now i've always been a bit of an unusual creature in the sense that i always think wage well, well you know that for many years <laughs> but i think high wages are a very good sign as long as productivity is going up right yeah and if productivity is going up and sometimes wages have to get more of output than profits so profits need to fall for wages to stay the same yes. or to rise. Yeah. And this isn't a bad thing. Yeah. And the reason it isn't a bad thing is we come back to this idea of inequality, that the way in which you suppress inequality is you actually increase wages. Because the vast but majority... But it's more of a profit share yeah, wage. The, yeah, the vast yeah. majority of people depend on wages for their income, mm. right? Yeah. And yeah. Only a small minority depend on dividends and rents and asset price, et cetera, for their income, right? So it strikes me that a society that has a rebalancing where wages go up and the return to profits falls yeah. is probably more healthy. And also the other thing is the average person spends more of their income than the rich person. This is really interesting, right? So rich people hoard money. Yeah. So the more very rich people you have, the more money you're actually taking out of the economy, not putting back in. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah, so yeah, the yeah. more average person, so as we're all invest in Bitcoin and well, stuff. Well, yeah, that, that's a complete nonsense. But anyway, 
So I've always said, if you get somebody with, you know, a hundred million quid, it's better to have a million people with a hundred quid than one person with a hundred million quid. Yes. For the economy. Yeah. yeah. Because the million people with a hundred quid will go out and spend it. There's a thing called the multiplier and it'll spend and it'll circulate around and all that sort of stuff. So what Dario was saying is that there is a significant risk of a policy mistake in the next 12 months. Yeah. We missed the tackle. We missed the tackle. Exactly. Your man is burned. Now, now you just have to do a Cellini. Do you remember what Cellini did? The Italian, he grabbed your man with the scruff of the neck, the English fella, Saka or whatever his name is. Then you're ruined. Then you're, then it's a, it's a, it's a red card straight away, right? But the chances of a global recession are getting higher and higher and higher as central bankers become less and less and less committed because they actually can't see what's going on. And if they panic, and raise interest rates too quickly, which they may well do, what you will have is you have to squeeze the economy and unnecessarily squeeze, because what he's saying is it's unnecessary. He's he's taking the view, relax, yeah. stand on the ball in the middle cool of the park, heels. be a chippy Brady, you know, don't pass too quickly, take a touch <laughs> and let's see what's happening. Take a touch, isn't that a great way to end the po <laughs> podcast? Just take a touch. I'm not finished yet, oh, though, Mac. Right, okay. What else is so, on your mind? So let me ask you, just before we go, Mac, let me just ask you this one question. Because over the last couple of years in this podcast, we've been talking a lot about MMT. Which has never been done. Well, my understanding of MMT is that the difference between MMT and your classical economics is in this particular inflationary situation is that in order to bring down inflation, we would raise taxes and not interest You're rates. You're absolutely right. You're so, absolutely so right. So if we were to do that, what would happen? Or well, if, if, we, did it in if America, we were to whatever. raise, if we were to raise taxes now, you'd have broadly the same impact, but it wouldn't come through the financial side of the economy. It would come through the real side of the economy. So if you were so raising, you hit tax, the workers. It would hit the workers, but you could raise corporate tax. You could raise VAT. You could do what I've always said: raise bloody property tax. Which is the most ludicrous right. thing we don't have one. Yeah. So you can but the interesting thing about MIT, MIT has never been tried anywhere. Like yeah. there's been a lot of talk about it. And in the first five or six months of Biden, the Bidenomics, there was a sense that, yeah. well, you know, we could do this, but it's never been done before because again But this the, was the, the time for them to actually test. But they didn't it. do it. They didn't do it. And You're I mean it, the essence, the essence of MIT is that you spend first and tax later. Mm. And the essence of mainstream economics is that you tax first and you spend later. So the retort that you'd find in the pub if you said to some mates of yours, well, I think we should, you know, build a new metro, which we really should. Yeah. And I'll, that's another story. Right? That is another story. Yeah, yeah. we might even come, we might come back to that. But people say, well, where are we going to find the money, right? Yeah. Who's going to pay for it? Yeah, so the MMT idea is like you build it first and you pay for it later. You yeah. print the money, you give that money to the contractors, they build it, they employ people, they generate income. That income is then taxed. And ultimately, you spend first and tax later. Yeah. Right? The mainstream view is you tax first and you spend later. So you can only spend that little bit that you've left out of your taxation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But MMT has never been tried. And I'm not sure it's going to be tried now because it seems to me that everybody has gone back. What happens in difficult periods are periods of panic or periods where people lose their mojo is all good ideas. As Keynes said, it's never the good new ideas that are the problem. It's escaping the tyranny of old bad ideas. And that yeah. I think is the truth in life, that it's not embracing the new that's the problem. 
It's jettisoning the old in your head. This is the way I've always done it. So I'm going to do it this way. Yeah, but that that dance needs a certain amount of bravery. Courage. Courage, mon ami. <laughs> mon ami, courage. <laughs> Just a quick message. Listen, thank you so much to all our Patreons. We couldn't do this without your support. And if you fancy supporting us and getting all sorts of fantastic gear, economic courses, tutorials, reading lists, all that jazz, follow us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.